Good morning. We are at the tail end of Mark chapter 12, and this is lesson 27, which I've titled, When Less is More. I have to say to you that this text, it, some texts sort of grab a hold of you more than others, and, and this text for me was one of those that just sort of grabbed a hold of me, and, and I, I mean that sort of in an emotional sort of way. Uh, it's one thing to sit back and even enjoy Jesus taking his critics apart in in the great debate section. There's a certain amount of kind of intellectual pleasure, sort of, sort of like watching the Cowboys win if they ever do. And, and you, you sort of get into that. But in this text, there, there's a sense of... Um, sweetness about this. I, I, I think that, that what I see of our Lord here is so lovely that, that I, I embrace it. I'm drawn to it more than I am him taking his, his adversaries apart as much as that was, that was necessary. And uh, so I, I really come to you this morning sort of charged up with this text. It, it may not look like uh, something very lengthy, but the reality is there's a lot of material here, and uh, I think it is well worth our attention. Well, why I picked the title, Why Less is More. For one thing, you have 39 verses in Matthew chapter 23, and you've got three verses in, in Mark chapter 12 that's covering sort of the same ground. And I look at this as sort of the way I do with Jesus being asked, what is the greatest commandment? And if it was true that there were 613 commandments, him boiling down the commandments to two, I think you would say less is more. It's better to understand the essence of those 612 or 13 laws than it is to just have a, a, a sort of a, a, a barrage of them without having any sense of them. So this one, I think, boils down. Jesus boils down the essence of the problem with the scribes, uh, and, and he does it in three verses. So we really get the heart of what this is all about, uh, and I think he's dealing primarily with the hearts of the scribes, not just with their actions here, but remember, Jesus said in Mark 7, it's out of the heart that these things proceed. And Jesus is exposing the hearts of the scribes in, in our text. I think you could also say that this text really sums up the essence of the gospel. And, and we'll kind of come back to that in a little bit. But, but I think it really does sort of lay out the gospel for us. And then when you think about the, the meager contribution of this, of this widow... You know, wouldn't you say, wouldn't you have to agree with Jesus? Less, her lesser amount is more. It is more than all of the contributions that everybody else has given. And so I think it's worth our time to ask ourselves the question, when is less really more? Well, let's just review for a minute the kind of backdrop for our text. If you uh, think back to the beginning of the gospel story, it wasn't very long before the scribes were right in the thick of it. 
And so when the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees showed up in, in uh, Matthew chapter 3, you, you know, John the Baptist is saying, I'm not baptizing you guys. You guys have to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. There isn't any. So forget it. The confrontation started then with John. Jesus quickly takes up the, uh, the, the torch, as it were, of the opposition with the scribes, because in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke's version of that says, Blessed are the poor. No scribe or Pharisee ever believed that, folks. Luke 16 says, The Pharisees were lovers of money. Blessed are the poor. You've got to be kidding. So Jesus turns everything upside down. All of the things that Phariseeism, and I'm, I'm sort of linking scribes and Pharisees here, everything that Phariseeism embraced, Jesus rejected and renounced. And so you have this, this inversion that happens in the beginning of our Lord's teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And then he says in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting to heaven. Which, by inference, means they're not getting there. And so here are the most pious people of Jesus' day, and Jesus says they're not going to make it. That certainly sounds like confrontation to me. And then he says in Matthew chapter 6, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites in terms of giving. Don't make it a public spectacle. Don't be like the hypocrites in prayer, making it long and seemingly pious. Uh, and then don't be like the hypocrites when you fast, making it so evident that everybody says to themselves, my, how pious they are. And don't be like the hypocrites in saving money. Lay up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. That flies in the face of everything that a, that a good Pharisee would ever uh, hold to or teach. Now, when you come to the Gospel of Mark, the skirmishes begin pretty early on. For example, you know in chapter 3 and verse 22, the, the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they say, this stuff that Jesus is doing, he is really doing by the power of Satan. It's Beelzebul's power. Jesus is demon-possessed. That sounds like confrontation to me. Then you have in chapter 7, remember verses 1 and 2 and following, the scribes and the Pharisees are noting that Jesus is, and his disciples are eating with unwashed hands, and they're saying, you know, that, that can't be right. And Jesus then comes to that part where he calls them hypocrites because they hold to their traditions above the law of God. When you're in John's gospel, the sparks start to fly very quickly because John has us going with Jesus to Jerusalem on a number of occasions. John 2, go to the temple. Cleansing of the temple, sparks fly. John chapter 5, the man who's laying there by the pool is healed, but he takes up his bed on the Sabbath. And uh, because of that, they have this terrible confrontation. And Jesus then says, uh, I do what my father is doing, claiming to be God. Now he's in trouble big time. 7 through 9 of John, you see Jesus again coming to Jerusalem and uh, having a lot of uh, struggles with the religious leaders. Chapter 11, he comes near to Jerusalem, 
And there he raises Lazarus, and the Jewish religious leaders of Jerusalem say, this is it. we got to finish him off. It's over now. So this whole confrontation has been brewing for some time. And when Jesus comes in the, in the Gospel of Mark at the triumphal entry, he sort of throws down the gauntlet, and it's clear he is claiming to be Messiah. He is claiming to be the one who is in authority. I'm going to put a little footnote here just for, for kicks. In Matthew 23, it's interesting the way it ends. It says, in effect, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's exactly the words that Matthew used and that we find at the triumphal entry. They said it. They obviously didn't know what it meant. So they get a redo, as it were, when Jesus comes again. Anyway, you have then the cleansing of the temple, Jesus claiming to be an authority. It is his father's house, and that creates even more opposition. The cursing of the fig tree is interwoven, as you know, in, in Mark's account. It is divided into two pieces, and it seems to me that we can see probably a number of applications, but do you not see that the temple and all of the trappings, and now the scribes with all of this stuff, their, their, their special titles, their long robes, all of this stuff gives the outward appearance of spirituality and piety. And yet the reality is no fruit. That's what John the Baptist said. Not baptizing you. No fruit. So the fruitless fig tree probably, in a way, sets the scene for us as well. So when we come to chapter 11, verse 27, we are not surprised to see the scribes along with the chief priests and the elders confronting Jesus and saying, just who do you think you are? Whose authority are you doing these things under? Who are you? And you remember Jesus then raises the question about John's authority. Was it from men or was it from heaven? They refuse to answer. So does our Lord. And so he follows up with the parable of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard puts it out to to tenants, and they refuse to pay the owner his due, and they beat some of his servants, they kill others, and eventually they kill the son. And the crowd calls out when asked, what should the uh, the vineyard owner do with these people? And they say, You ought to kill those wicked people and you ought to give that to somebody else who gives him the fruit. And they realized the horror of what they were saying, I think, in those words. And the Sadducees come along taking up the the, the baton. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They don't believe in resurrection and they don't understand what goes on after the resurrection. And Jesus has them on the run as well. Then we come across the the seemingly sincere scribe. And I've I've tried to say to you last week, I don't think he's as as sincere as he looks. seems to me this is a hypocritical uh, kind of posture. But Jesus deals with him somewhat differently. But when we come to our text, I think even though Jesus has said, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven... Well, I get this feeling that this, you know, if if you're looking at that saying, it's just this little tiny gap. Boy, when you come to the next verse and it talks about woe unto these guys, 
it looks like, you know, evil Knievel's going to have trouble jumping that gap. And, and uh, so that's where our text takes up. You remember, then Jesus asks the question, so about David's son, if the Messiah is David's son, how can he say that his son is his Lord? Jesus is pressing them to think about who Messiah is. And the only answer that's satisfactory is David's son must also be God. And, of course, that's the story of Christmas. The incarnation is the story of how this Messiah who comes is not only man but is God. And they don't understand that. If they did, then, of course, they would have to give to God what the great commandment says, love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus now speaks to the crowds and his disciples, beware of the scribes. That's why I say, I think you have to look at the, at the seemingly sincere scribe in the light of these words, because these are not soft words that Jesus uses for the scribes. And if you want more, you read Matthew chapter 23. They are harsh words about the scribes and their hypocrisy. In Mark's gospel, it seems that he is more addressing the crowd in his teaching. But when you look at Luke's gospel, it is clear he is speaking not only to the crowds, but specifically to his disciples. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, rooted in those discussions in the past, who's going to be the greatest, who gets to sit at your right hand, your left hand, and all that stuff. Jesus says to his disciples, watch out, because the things that characterize these guys as leaders are the things with which you will have to grapple as well. Leaders must struggle with these things. And then, you know, he comes to the story that ends the chapter, the story of the widow and her meager uh, contribution. And then you see the end of the, the great debate, the end of his teaching publicly, and now our Lord teaches privately to his disciples, but Jesus is definitely on his way to the cross at the end of the story that we have. So this text is the conclusion to this major section in, in the Gospel of Mark, and that's why I love it so much. It ends in such a way that, that you have this, not only the feeling of condemnation that you get from Matthew 23, which is a condemnation of Jerusalem, but you get this commendation of this woman and how she typifies one who has virtually nothing to offer, but has all of her devotion and she trusts fully in God. So let's make some observations now about our text and looking particularly in its contrast and comparison with Matthew's gospel. By the way, Matthew and his 39 verses are very helpful to us by way of explanation of some of the things that Mark says more briefly. We'll see that, I think, in a moment. Matthew has 39 verses. Mark has three. Luke virtually the same as Mark. Notice that in in Matthew 23, it's scribes and Pharisees. And in uh, Mark, it is just scribes. Now, you see other instances where it'll talk about the Pharisees and their scribes or uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. And it seems to me that basically they're, they're the same group uh, 
large group, but the scribes are the teachers within that particular group. So uh, eight times in Matthew, scribes and Pharisees in Mark, only scribes. But remember, it's the scribe who has been raising the questions uh, just before in Mark's uh, gospel. Matthew ends on a sour note. Mark ends on a sweet note, at least so far as, as my reading of the story is concerned. Matthew does not include a story of the, the story of the widow and her contribution, whereas Mark uh, and Luke do. And when you notice as well, he says uh, in this, woe to you hypocrites. In, in Matthew's account, the word hypocrite is not used in this specific text in, in um, Mark. It is certainly used earlier on because there was clear hypocrisy. And, and the other thing that's interesting is in Matthew's account, the rebuke is pointed right at the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you! He's got his finger. He's pointing at them. And when you look at the account in, in, uh, in Mark and Luke, He's speaking to the crowds and he says, look out for them. So there's a difference between in your face to these guys and now speaking to the crowds and the disciples saying, don't be like those guys. So it's a little different perspective that you get in in Mark's gospel and Luke's account as well. Mark selects the key issues that are heart issues with respect to the scribes. So when you go down to your next point there, you'll see if you look at Mark 12, 38 through 40, our text of rebuke uh, of the uh, warning of, of the scribes, if you look at those verses, you'll find them in Matthew 23, 5 through 7 and 14. In other words, the verses are almost the same. But what Matthew does is add a whole lot more material and Mark selects out this particular material for his emphasis in what he has to say. Notice this occurs in his teaching. In other words, Jesus is still there in the temple, the temple he has possessed at the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. It is in his teaching as he speaks to the people that he is making this point about the danger of these scribes. And what I'm trying to get across is this is a message, not just a message of warning to scribes or to religious professionals. It is a warning to the church about religious professionals. So there is a sense in which these scribes are wrong for wanting the adulation that they get The other side of it, friends, is we are wrong to give men adulation that belongs only to our Lord. So it seems to me you have to see that as a part of what he's teaching. So it's a backhanded rebuke of the scribes in Mark and instruction to the crowds and the disciples about this matter of leadership and its perks. So let's look at the uh, actual text now in terms of the failure of the scribes. The scribes' first failure, okay, let's just call it sin. The scribes' first sin is wanting to be first. And, And when you look in Matthew's account and so on, that's really what it's saying. They want the first places, the first seats, first chair, so to speak. Not unlike James and John, 
right hand and left hand, the places of highest prominence and highest visibility. So they, uh, they have this long garb. I don't know exactly. I know that there are the tassels that are worn and whether that's part of what this is as you lengthen your tassels or whether it's somehow related to the length of the garment. You remember when they ran, they would gird up their loins and, and, and wrap that thing up around themselves so their legs were free to run. And it may be that, that the long garb was a way of saying, I'm too important to run. I'm too important and dignified, so I have this long flowing robe that somehow sets me apart. And in that sense, it may not be a, a coat of many colors, but it has the Jacob's coat feel to it. And they are wearing that coat with pride. They love it because it is a status symbol. If you were in the military, you know, you'd have stripes and all kinds of stuff going down your chest. And it isn't just that it's wrong to have that robe. It's wrong for them to love what the robe does for them. I think that's the thing we need to see. There was a garb for the priests. They were to look distinct. But it was that distinction that they worked at and wanted to make themselves look above and beyond. They loved public prominence. Notice in our text it says they loved these greetings in the marketplace. And apparently they were all kinds of special ones. But the bottom line is when people spoke to them, they spoke to them in a different way than they spoke to others. I'm not a great student of language, as Don Glenn could tell you. <laughs> but I, I did major in Hebrew and I took Greek. And so I, I have a little feel for language. And one of the things I know about certain languages other than those is there are different words for people like relationships, and it may distinguish between a maternal father or, or you know, paternal or whatever, and, and differentiate, differentiate in that way. But there are ways in which language tells you where people fit in the scheme of things. And it seems to me that's what's going on here. They love the greetings that set them on top. They love those special greetings that are, that are flattery to them or they're received in that way in the marketplace. Notice they like the seats of honor in the synagogues. Now, I'm told, I don't know this to be true, I'm told that in the synagogues, the seats of, of prominent, prominence would be this front row, but they'd be turned around. So now everybody gets to look at your face. You know, you guys... Poor old Jim in the back, all he sees is the back of everybody's heads. But see, if, if there was this row of prominent people, then everybody gets to see the faces of these guys. And it's, it's, it's just ego stuff that they're into. And of course, the prime place at banquets. You see this at the Last Supper. You see, I think, a seating arrangement where I suspect Jesus put Judas nearby and yet Judas responds, as you know, by betraying his Lord. But there are places of honor. They love that stuff because all of these things underscore their prominence and their, their uh, prestige, and they bask in it. Now, I confess, I didn't get this out of Mark, but it seems to me when you go to Matthew in particular, Matthew 23, and a couple of other texts, we see why this is wrong. 
Look at the, look at the, the reasons why this status-seeking, status-basking kind of, of attitude and action is wrong. Number one, it seeks glory that belongs only to God. Do you see? That's what our Lord says. He says in Matthew 23, one is your teacher. One is your father. One is your leader. Don't ever give to men the title that belongs only to God. They were exalting themselves. It sounds like Satan. I will be like the Most High. I want that same position and power and prestige. It only belongs to him. Not to men. So when men seek to exalt themselves, they are seeking to exalt themselves at the expense of our Lord's preeminence and glory. It exalts some above others. I'm going to come back to this. This I love. There was a little reference to that in the worship meeting this morning. But remember he says, you are all brothers. What that says is there is no pecking order. There is no more, no pecking order other than this. God, men. That's the pecking order. But when men start basking in these titles, what they want is that, that, that sense of, of glory that comes from somehow being above somebody else. He says, Jesus says, you're all brothers. Don't exalt yourselves in that way. Here's one that really caught me by surprise. It violates the royal law. I never saw this before in James chapter 2. We talked about the, the, the great commandments. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Man, I have heard, well, I don't even hardly want to go down that trail. I've heard so much psychobabble on this verse, it just makes me ill. You have to love yourself first. And then, and only then, you can love others. That's not what James says about this verse. I never saw it, but what he says in James 2 is, it is wrong to discriminate with people in terms of where they sit and the prominence they get based upon their status in life. So he says, don't you say to the poor man, you go sit there back outside somewhere, in, in back yonder, out of sight, and, and to the well-to-do and the prominent people, you come right up here and have these prime seats. He says, that violates the, the royal law. And the royal law says, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? It means you are to love him on the same level as yourself. You don't love him as someone lower or higher. Everyone, if they're in the brotherhood, you love them in the same way that you love yourself, in the same level that you love yourself. Everybody's on the same plane. That's what James says. It violates the royal law, which we just saw in the passage before, because it puts some above others. And it's contrary to God's pattern for servant leadership. You know, the discussion has been going on in Mark, has it not? You know, about who is going to be the greatest. Here Jesus is talking about the cross, and they're talking about who is the greatest, who gets to sit at the right hand and the left hand. Everybody's into that. And Jesus says, unless you're like a child, 
If you're, if you're not like a child, you, you've missed it. The, it's like being, you must be like a child to enter into the kingdom of God. And then you remember Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus says the one who is the greatest is the one who takes the lowest position and becomes the servant of all, like Jesus. And so to take the, the position, to take up the actions of these status-seeking, pious uh, folks is to violate the principle of servant leadership. It's to violate the very essence of what leaders, how leaders are to think of themselves and how they are to behave in relationship to each other. And therefore he says, oh, by the way, power is given. I didn't say that, did I? Power is, oh, man, I left out a couple of good verses. Try this one on for size. Their second sin. They prey upon the powerless because they abuse their power by devouring widows' property at the same time that they're given these long prayers. Now, I personally, I initially set these apart and said they, they, they take widows' property and then they have these pious prayers. And you see that over in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6. I think that Jesus has put these two together. And what he's saying is, on the one hand, here they are going through all this pious prayer and everybody thinks how holy. At the same time, they're, they're literally stealing this widow's property. And it's interesting that they use the word devour. It's a word that literally means to eat. When you come to Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, I told you that Matthew gives us a commentary on Mark. Listen to what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Isn't that interesting? Outside, it's like the prayers. Outside, these long, lengthy prayers. Inside, you're thieves who are indulging your own fleshly desires. Now, when you look at, at the scriptures, and I've listed a number of them, Isaiah 1, uh, uh, Isaiah 56, Ezekiel 32, and Daniel, power was given to those who ruled so that they would protect the weak. Power was given to take care of and protect the vulnerable. That's why you had widows, orphans, uh, those who were the aliens, and so on. They were all under the protective power, as it were, of those who led. The problem is that when Israel's leaders fell and failed, they now saw their power as the occasion to use the poor to satisfy their own indulgence. Now, a classic illustration of that is David with his power as the king of Israel and Bathsheba and Uriah. And, and so you'll notice in, in Nathan's story, he talks about, in a sense, this helpless uh, person. And, and David is employing his power to indulge himself and to, to, to murder one of his, his own faithful soldiers. He's misunderstood and misused the power that God has given because it is the power to protect, not the power to prey upon others and take advantage of them or plunder them. So Jesus says, greater punishment awaits such people. 
greater punishment for those who have positions of power and use it for self-service as opposed to self-sacrificing service to others. James chapter 3, verse 1. Be not many teachers. That's what these guys were. Because you will incur greater judgment. Luke chapter 12. To whom much has been given, much is required. Serious business. To have authority and power and abuse that in a way that actually oppresses people. And I have to tell you, I think it is really true. Oh, I don't know whether I want to go down this trail or not, but I'll go down there just a little tiny ways. Doesn't it make you angry to think about Congress using insider trading for their benefit when we go to jail for it? Doesn't that make you angry? Because what you see is the use of power to promote your own interests and fooey on everybody else. That's what these guys are doing. It's a kind of spiritual insider trading. Who but the leaders of the church are going to know about people who are impoverished? Who but the leaders in, 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 in the religious leaders are going to know this woman's property is going to be repossessed? They have inside knowledge, and rather than using that to serve, they use it to take property away for their own self-indulgence. Okay, let's go to uh, commending the widow's faith in, uh, in chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. This is the part I love. I love this. Isn't it interesting that the dot that connects the previous text with this one is... Widows. They oppress the widow. Jesus exalts the widow. Do I need to remind you? Jesus' mother was a widow. And one of the last things he did on the cross was to look to her care. He had some sense from the inside of what widowhood looked like. And here he is now exalting, as it were, upholding this, uh, this widow. Jesus is still in the temple. He sits in view of the offering box somehow. I don't know how all that worked out, but he was there where he could watch. And it is apparent that all of the people who are passing by are making their contributions. There would be some with great contributions, some with small ones. The focus of of Mark is you see the great contributions and perhaps the way in which the performance in which they they did that, uh, and and then there were the sort of run-of-the-mill givers, and then there was this woman. Oh, by the way, I have to tell you this. I got this out of one of the commentaries, Philip Hughes. I think he quoted one of the American presidents about these pompous religious people. One of the presidents said, it is the only preacher I have ever known who can strut sitting down. Don't you love that? Or that proverb that talks about, you know, there, there's the cock and the, and the goat and, and this majestic walk and the king with his army behind him. Oh, boy. Okay, I've, that's, I've said enough. I feel better just for getting it off my chest. He observes the crowd. Some are giving large amounts, but he focuses on this widow who gives a little, very little. Would you not agree? Very little. Less a fraction of a penny but it's all that she owns, and it's her only means of provision for herself. Text is clear. So Jesus calls his disciples. Now, maybe I'm going to go too far on my limb with this. But see, 
we're, we're just a couple of verses away now from Matthew chapter 13. And this is about future things. And Matthew 13 happens in two scenes. 13, 1 and 2, the disciples are with Jesus and they are walking out of the temple. And they're looking around at all the splendor and the glory and they see this. And and then in the verses that follow, they're now across the Kidron Valley. They're looking down from the Mount of Olives and they're looking down upon the temple from that perspective that some of you have seen it or seen pictures of it. Two different scenes. And so I asked myself the question, if Jesus had to go get his disciples, where were they and what were they doing? Now, this, is, this can only come from a, a, a mind that has been years in, in the practice of carnality and thinking. You know what I think they were doing? I think they were out looking for who got the corner office. When they say to Jesus, Oh, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. What are they thinking? Well, why are they so all fired hot about this beautiful place? Because Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. And if they're sitting at his right hand or left, and even if they're number 11 or 12, man, they're going to set up office here. So I think they're out looking, checking out where they're going to camp. The Occupy Jerusalem movement all over again. Well, anyway, so here we are. Jesus calls for his disciples. And I think when he says to them, this woman, this widow, my sense is that Jesus now has that woman standing in front of him. Not, you know, you could say from a distance with binoculars, that woman. He says, this woman. I believe that Jesus has drawn that woman to him or he's drawn over to her, summoned his disciples and said, this woman has given more than all of the others. Now, he doesn't say this woman has given more than any of the others. He says she has given more than all of them because she gave everything she had. That's why I think this story is so beautiful, don't you? Here's this woman. What thoughts are going through her head? Do you think she doesn't know that's the last money she has? You know, like the widow that Elijah goes to and she's making up her last batch of flat bread on the, on the grill. And Elijah says, you know, give me some of that, please. She said, hey, I understand. This is it. This is all there is. Jesus calls her over or goes over to her, I think, and says, I commend this woman. Boy, that woman went away. In my opinion, she went away praising God. And rightly so. Jesus is not impressed with how much we give. He is impressed and takes note of how much is left. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to tell you folks, or even myself, that we need to give it all away. But don't put that thought away too far. Jesus told the rich young ruler, if you want to follow me, give it all away. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it goes in somebody else's bank account. But you don't lay claim to it. It certainly isn't Corban. You somehow recognize that belongs to God. And you're willing to go with that money wherever God leads. That's what I think our Lord Jesus is saying. He commends this woman's faith because when she does this, folks, she's totally entrusting herself to God. And I might add, this is not Acts chapter 2. <laughs> that's coming 
where, or Acts chapter 6, where the church is taking care of them. With crooks like this running this place, it really is an act of faith. Where is that money going when it goes clink down into the, the offering box? She really is entrusting herself to God, but she believed that was what God had for her to do. So let's think about some concluding remarks. What a beautiful way to end a section of confrontation, is it not? I, I have to say, when I, when I get to the end of Matthew 23, there's a kind of a sadness, a heaviness there, and rightly so. Because God is going to send to them, by the way, he's going to send to them prophets and scribes whom they will reject. It's the only place in Matthew 23 where scribes is used in a positive way, minus the word Pharisee, which might include somebody like Paul, you think? And, and they will abuse them, whatever, kill some of them. And then the Lord will come to bring judgment to that city. But Mark's gospel leaves us with a really sweet taste. Has he taken the opposition apart piece by piece? You bet. Has he shown how foolish they were? Absolutely. But at the same breath, he gives us this other side of the coin. And what a beautiful flip, is it not? Here, here are, as it were, the rich and the powerful in, in the scribes and the Pharisees. Here is this woman. How far apart are they? He indicts them, commends her. I love it. I love it. So try out this definition of humility. A, humility must be defined in terms of relationships. Philippians 2, you regard others more important than yourself. I don't think humility can exist apart from some relationship. So humility has to be viewed of in terms of relationship Arrogance sees our strengths and the weaknesses of others and sees it as the opportunity for personal enrichment. Is that not right? Look at the poor in many countries of this world. It's the poor who are oppressed. Even look at some of the televangelists and the phony preachers that are going on. Who do they oppress? They oppress the poor. Those who were weak and powerless. Arrogance sees our strengths as the reasoning and the rationale for taking advantage of the weak. Humility sees our strengths and other people's weaknesses as the opportunity for us to enrich them. It's a very, very different view of life and of ministry. So when I read this text, I think of our Lord's mission and his coming. I think about Luke chapter 1. This is Mary's Magnificat. And I've always wondered, you know, when it talks about the, the high places are made low and the low places are lifted up, there's, there's a sort of a geographical element to that, that you would make a highway and when you make freeways, you try to not, not have great big climbs and de declines and whatever and you kind of level it all out. But it seems to me that's not what the focus of this is at. Luke chapter 1, 46. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. 
For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. Isn't that beautiful? That's what she's saying about Jesus. And Jesus is doing it here, is he not? He's taking down, as it were, dismantling the arrogance and the pride of Israel's leaders. And he's lifting up a humble woman because of her faith and her devotion. This is the Lord's character. Philippians chapter 2. This is the nature. This is who our Lord is. This is what he's about. Philippians 2, that we ought not to consider ourselves more important than others, but we ought to put the interests of others above ourselves. Here's what's interesting. When you come to James chapter 2, the law of love says, I must love other people on the same level that I am. (laughs) But Philippians 2 takes it one more notch. And it says, I must, if I am like Christ and I am humble, I must exalt others above myself. Now they are more important than me. Their needs are more important than my needs. That's what Jesus is saying. And what he is like. Our Lord's character. This is the gospel with one exception. One exception. First Peter chapter 5. The Lord opposes the arrogant, but he lifts up the humble. Isn't that, isn't that really what the gospel's about? Isn't that what the second coming's going to be about? Taking down the high and the haughty, lifting up the lowly. But here's the exception, my friend. You don't give one coin. See, most all of us, we love this picture in a sense because we can say, well, I know God did most of it, but I got my two pennies in there. No, that's not a picture of salvation, friend. Salvation is you are flat broke. You don't drop anything in the offering plate. Salvation is you acknowledging to God you are broke and you are deep in debt. And his salvation comes as a free gift. You don't add anything, even a little thing, to what God has done for your salvation. All right, I'm going to jump on down to a couple of things. Certainly it says to us some things about us as a church, the kind of men that we place in positions of leadership, the kind of spirit that those men have, the kind of men we look out for and avoid. And I think this is where, when Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. The trouble with these guys who were arrogant and puffed up is we start hitching our wagon to them. We start finding our identity in them. And friends, that's wrong. We find our identity in Christ, period. Okay, here's the thought I want to leave with you. What an encouragement this text is to the little people with the little gifts. I don't know how many times in my life in ministry I've heard somebody say, I'm just a, you fill in the blank. I'm just a layman. 
Well, as I see our text, there aren't categories of laymen and clergy. You know what I loved about our meeting? I love many things about it, and I love Leonard. Do you know what I love? Leonard and I have different job descriptions. In that meeting, friends, Leonard led, and I followed. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That meeting is so, I don't want to say democratic, but it is so liberating in the sense that it doesn't set up these barriers. That's what the gospel is about. And, and for many of us, we look at our little contribution and we say to ourselves, it's so small. Jesus didn't see that widow's contribution that way because it was all she had. What God expects of us is full dependence upon Him, full devotion to Him, and not holding back anything. When God takes away our job, when God takes away our security... In a sense, he's doing us a favor because he's moving us closer to that lady. And the question is, do we trust fully in him? That's what delights him. Not our pompous positions and the length of our robes and whatever else people say. It doesn't mean anything. All right, last thing. I'm getting all worked up. It's all about him. Isn't that what this is saying? It's all about God. And these guys think it's all about them. It's all Him. And whenever we get ourselves in the wrong orientation and we think it's about us, we miss the boat. This woman understood it. It's about God. It's about trusting in Him. It's about devoting yourself to Him. It's about His glory, His purposes. That's what it's all about. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the way in which you not only put down the mighty, but you exalt this woman. I pray for all of those in this audience who may think of themselves as insignificant, as their gift as somehow less than somebody else's. May they give it all to you. May they trust fully in you and be devoted to you and seek your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.